Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now, on with the show. All right. So, welcome everybody to the new episode of One Step Beyond. This is Tony here, of course. I'm trying something new today, and I'm doing this uh, live with my guests for the show, going straight into the chat, uh, really just as an attempt to streamline the show and the editing process. Uh, If you're new to the show, it's all about positively engaging with the world outside our door. And if you're a subscriber and you listen chronologically, then I hope you enjoyed the episode I made with my partner Paula for the last one about our visit to Costa Rica. As it happens, I'm taking a college course right now entitled Travel and Tourism, A Critical Perspective, which is actually part of a cultural anthropology, I guess, overriding course, which uh, is all part of me going for my degree after all these years. And to say that that course is right up my street would be an absolute understatement. And I'm happy to say we're somewhat or very much so on the travel and tourism front again today. But, 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 but we're also back with the outdoor exercise, which is like the other driving force of this show and my life. And I feel like we got a great balance because I'm talking to two authors about brand new books that involve travel and the outdoors and exercise and the liquid rewards at the end of it all, which is pretty much every button I want to push on this show. And we have a lovely balance because we have an American, we have a Brit, or a Scotsman, I should note, in case that's offensive, <laughs> but I am half Scottish myself. Uh, and we have me, and I hold passports to both the UK and the USA, so I'm like moderator, in the middle, host, neutral, and extremely enthusiastic. So without further ado, ado or not adieu, that's goodbye. So without further ado, Jason Friedman, Colin Renton, welcome to One Step Beyond. Thank you, Tony. Thanks, nice Tony. To be here. Thanks and for having us. Absolutely. So why don't I allow you, each of you to be the ones to introduce yourselves by giving the title of your book. And unless you think the title does the job, the one sentence elevator pitch. And I know in your case, Jay, and I'm going to ask you to go first. And I know you often go by Jay. Uh, you have a co-author who couldn't be here today as well. So I know you want to give him a shout out. Yeah, so we had to, uh, we, we definitely had to keep the percentage of Brits down on the show, That's which is why <laughs> my co-author, Phil, uh, another British expat, is, is not on. Uh, yeah, so uh, our book is called uh, Beer Hiking New York State. Um, uh, I wrote it with my friend Phil, uh, Phil Vondra, and um, yeah, it's one in a series of kind of beer hiking books uh, from around the country and around the world by our publisher, and it's basically pairing up different hikes of different uh, lengths and difficulty uh, all over New York State and pairing them with nearby microbreweries. And we kind of go in and, and kind of guide people to different, uh, you know, hiking areas and beers that they can enjoy afterwards. Sounds perfect. Colin, your book. Yes, my, my book is The Wine Runner, My Year of Hard Yards and Vineyards. 
And the story behind this is that um, I had done a half marathon about 40 years ago and always planned to do a marathon. I hadn't got around to it yet. Uh, and I was attracted by the idea of um, the Marathon du Médoc in Bordeaux, where which involves running through vineyards. And when I started to research that, I found that there were lots of runs through vineyards or that were wine-related. Um, and with my 60th birthday looming, I decided to make that the, the catalyst to actually finally achieve this, this marathon thing. Um, so I ended up doing 12 different runs that were all wine-related in some way over a 12-month period in different parts of Europe. Um, and I collected a bottle of wine on each of the trips so that at the end of the year, I'd done 12 runs in 12 countries over 12 months, and I had a case of wine. You actually did this year in 2022, and whenever I do books, they take a long time to come out. So so I was actually caught at one point when you literally wrote about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and I'm like, well, did he add that in? But uh, I, I appreciate that it's that up-to-date. And you didn't just buy a bottle of wine uh in each uh, country, each region, you you sampled locally. So there's a combination of kind of wine tasting, wine history, etc. Um, and and they've, you know, what I love here is they they obviously they mine similar territory, but they're also radically different from each other. Uh, Jay, the the beer hiking New York. It's subtitled by the way, the tastiest way to discover the Empire State, which sounds fa- fair enough. Um, <laughs> But they're rather, they, the way they're different from each other, you know, they're similar but different. Obviously, hiking, beer, USA, New York, uh, you know, wine, running, EU, Europe, Britain, the uh, the Brexit rebel. Uh, but one's highly visual, which is the beer hiking book, and it's it's you know it's comprised in bite sized chunks. I think it's thirty three hikes, if I'm right. Yep. Uh, That's right. With, with very, very cool graphics, kind of template graphics that you use for each hike. And uh, so therefore, quite easy to follow. Once you, once you figure out the graphics, it's easy to follow. And the other is a journal of a kind, divided into a dozen decent length chapters. Both have pictures of the scenery, which I assume you guys took yourselves. I've made that assumption. Yeah. Um, okay, maybe... Uh, I'll bounce back and forth for a couple of questions and I'm going to dive in deeper to each book, but I want you to feel free to be part of a, like a three-way conversation. And if you've, you know, any, any questions, just jump on in. But uh, Jay, what, what do you see as the natural connection between beer and hiking or hiking and beer? If you, if you yeah. prefer it that way. That That's a great question. Um, the, uh, I think a lot of people, there's certainly a lot of hikers out there who enjoy beer while they're hiking, but, uh, you know, certainly as a a hiker and a trail runner, um, it's, it's a very kind of common pairing to, you know, hit, hit a a bar or pub after, after the hike. But also, you know, one of the things that, that I didn't appreciate quite as much before writing the book was kind of how connected beer making is to kind of, you know, just the, the local environment. Um, you know, the lo- especially in New York, where there are a lot of farm breweries, a lot of uh, the breweries that we visited are really committed to using local ingredients, New York state hops, gra- in some cases, grains that are produced right on, you know, the, the same property or by the brewery. And so I think, you know, people who are, you know, and, and, and a lot of the character and flavor of the beer and what you're tasting is going to come from those environments and, um, you know, kind of the just what is the soil like? You know, what is what is the agriculture like? So I think there's that 
that definite connection to the outdoors in in both disciplines and i think both hikers and brewers or beer appreciators are invested in conservation and and making sure that you know we have these open places that are kept natural for you know a variety of different purposes so i think that's a, a natural connection that i wasn't you know super invested in when when we started writing the book that the more places that we visited where you know talking to brewers that that kind of theme kept coming up um of you know really the 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 local water and the soil and 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 the products uh the ingredients that they use locally is really what gives the beer its its characteristic and so it's it's um that that connection was was you know more apparent the more we worked on it yeah it's a great connection i'm so glad that you raised the kind of whole environmental conservation stewardship issue nice and early because that's always a part of the show and it's something i want to talk about a little bit more uh uh, Colin, Jay did everything but mention the classic French wine word, which involves rolling your R's. If you can roll your R's better than me, he pretty much described a lot of winemaking, didn't he? Is, do you know the word I'm talking about, right? Begins with T. It's, it's Be- te- terroir. Terroir. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, Colin, you had it. Was that you, Colin? Say it again. That was definitely Terry. Colin. I can't do that. <laughs> terroir. Yeah, yeah. That was said in a French accent. That was that was good. All right. <laughs> Um, that word, because I'm I'm desperately trying to learn to roll my R's. I don't want to embarrass myself after that one. That word pretty much sums up. Uh, it's it's a one word for a lot of the things I guess Jay mentioned. But uh, is that something that was notable about your research and what you did? I mean, for me, the connection between wine and running is not so pronounced as say beer and running or beer and hiking. So. Uh, to me, it's a, it, you, yours is a more interesting uh, di- challenge in a way. Uh, so, so you've explained the reason for doing it, which is a fantastic, fantastic thing. Treat yourself at the age of 60 and go off and do 12 runs. Um, but when you were visiting the wineries and going on the runs, did you find kind of similar connections to what Jason just talked about? Yes. I mean, the, the history behind it is that, well, apparently this is... A, uh, I was unable to confirm this, but the the legend, if you like, is that uh, wine running, so running around vineyards, started um, sometime in many years ago when the vineyard owners um, encouraged their staff to be fit for the harvest. Um, so they sent them out running at lunchtime and then came back and had their lunch. And of course, a Frenchman, um, for example, would always have wine with their lunch, so therefore the that's that's the sto- the history behind it suggests that you go running and then you sit down and you you have a, some wine with your lunch, and then the uh, the way I did it there, there were there were different approaches, but those that involved running through vineyards, um, it was very much a, a coming together of nature sport. Um, and the agriculture that goes into um, the, the vineyards. Um, it was uh, there, there was a there was a great deal of respect for the the vines, the vineyards, um, and just generally the, the the landscape around these things. Um, things such as um, whether were feed stations, you know, there was a very limited space, so you had to lift the, the, the drink and drink it and dispose of the cup within sort of 50 to 100 metres in most places. Um, 
there were some the the, the sort of relationship between the the wine and the running. Some involved drinking wine during the run. <laughs> um, some there were clearly some people who had been imbibing before the run, um, <laughs> given given the, the some of those who were lining up on the on, on the starting line. Um, but most of it involved um, the uh, enjoying the product which came from the landscape that we had just covered uh, when we reached the, the end of the, uh, yeah. the races that I was running in. Yeah, I'm, I'm just a massive fan of local, small, just the idea that wherever you go, you have the local food, you, have, you try the local drink, um, you know, within, within your own dietary choices and restrictions. But you do, you, know, you do that, you sample the local wares, and uh, you know, there are wonderful uh, positives about us having a really interconnected world, not least that you can travel around Europe and do all these events. Uh, but that that connection between you know the, the the beauty of being able to sort of run through a a vineyard and then taste their wines afterwards, be it be it the next day or at the end of the race, is you know similar to being able to do one of these hikes. And New York State does have incredible incredible hiking. I've done a couple of episodes actually here, different ways about midwinter hike and. Uh, uh, I've done barefoot hiking with Ken Posner, who I'm sure you know, Ken Posner. Sure. sure you know him perfectly well. Jay, I've done actually a couple of different things with him. We did a winter hike together where he took his shirt off in sub-zero temperatures and we went without <laughs> navigation because Sounds that's Ken. On brand. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's on brand, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I uh, haven't really done much about the wine. Now, a lot of us are amateur runners and uh, amateur hikers. Uh, because it's just a pastime. Uh, you you came into this book with a certain knowledge of wine. How did you uh, just um, you know very much in the in a nutshell? Did, did you have a good knowledge of wine? It really it felt like you came in with a pretty good. Um, yeah, I mean, I did a, a sort of low level wine tasting course some time ago, and um, I got together with a group of friends, and we had a, a wine club for a number of years. Um, so I suppose I acquired my knowledge through practice, really. But uh, <laughs> it was—I um, I felt that I, I, I had a, a sort of basic knowledge, a reasonable amount of background knowledge. But I think wine is one of these subjects that you discover the more you try to learn about it, the more you realise you don't know. Um, so it's a, it's a massive subject, and it was—I um, was very much in the hands of the experts when I was going out to these wine tastings, and um, they were leading these things. Um, and one of the objectives that I had at, the, at the, the start of the book was obviously this thing about running the marathon, visiting countries and learning a bit about wine. Um, so by the end of it, I certainly did feel that my, my knowledge had improved quite a bit. Yeah, well, it came it came across, and I agree. Ten thousand hours of practice—it's proven. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. I haven't counted them, but yes, I knew. Mean, <laughs> um, both of you have a lot of variety in your books, considering that uh, you know, Colin, you didn't get further than Europe, um, but you hit all the powerhouse countries and then you hit half a dozen others, which I love. And um, what Jay, what you and Phil have done in your book is you've decided to, to lay this out in, uh, in geographic order. And there are people who said you could have started up top and, and given the upstate areas, you know, the front pages and worked your way down to Manhattan. You've done it the other way. Let's say you've gone from the population upwards. I <laughs> love though that you start out by starting your very first hike 
at Port Authority Bus Terminal <laughs> on 42nd Street and 8th Avenue in New York City, which was actually my, that was where I first landed in New York City because I came down from Boston on a day trip and I would mm -hmm. have gotten out there unless I got out at Penn Station, which is possible. But I did a lot of Port Authority from then on. And at that point in the late 80s, you could not find a more dangerous, noisy, chaotic and thoroughly <laughs> urban uh, place probably in the whole of the United States. So I thought this was a brilliant place to start because you actually you actually do sell it. So do you want to elaborate just a little bit on that first hike? Because I'm sure the initial perception people have is all of this is going to be trails and woods and forest and lakes. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, you know, obviously no shortage of, of beautiful, uh, idyllic, you know, secluded spots in New York, but, um, you know, you can't, you certainly can't have uh, any sort of guidebook of New York state without including something in New York city. And New York city is a, is a great, you know, place for urban hiking or walking or whatever you want to call it. And there are, there are all kinds of little places to discover, um, you know, Port Authority, the, the the publisher uh, Helvetique is is our publisher and they're a, a European a Swiss company and the books that they've done in Europe you know similar ideas uh, beer hiking and wine hiking books you know most of those uh, trailheads are you know there's there's directions for each uh, for each hike on how to get to the trailhead and in Europe a lot of it is you know you take this bus or you take this train and it drops you right at the trailhead or whatever and in in the us that's not uh not quite so common so we tried to kind of stick to that sort of uh ethos whenever we could if there was a hike that you could start from a train station or a bus stop or you know there was a shuttle that took you from from public transportation that was the idea so um just a great uh you know for us it, we were just like anyone can get to port authority it's it's you know you don't have to have a car uh you can take a train and get there you can take a bus and get there and it's you know, from there, not only the hike that we did, which was basically um, linking up a few different sites on the west side and going down to um, to the Torch and, Ground, Torch and Crown Brewery, which is the only brewery on the island of Manhattan. Um, uh, you know, so you could follow that hike and, and see um, the Intrepid and you can get glimpses of uh, the Freedom Tower and you can hike on um, the, uh, the High Line the high line thank you um and you know see that great uh sculpture at the end and and all that sort of stuff um but you can go in a completely different direction and just go you know half you know a, a mile over and and go to the the uh empire state building or you can go see madison square garden um so it, it is a great place to really uh jump off from and explore the city yeah, it is. New York City is as good a walking city as pretty much any city in the world. You you cover miles in New York City without realizing what you're you're doing. But I like that you take a sort of west and then away from traffic lights and roads for the most part down the West Side Highway and across. I actually did not know of the Torch and Crown Brewery. So if, even if I don't get to do too many of the other hikes, note for note, word for word, step by step, I'm determined to do that one on a on a future trip down to the city um there used to be a brewery at port authority didn't there but it's closed now there was one yeah. right on the corner so um i mean they weren't famous for necessarily for their beers but they were there <laughs> so um, and there are plenty there are plenty of good uh beer halls in new york city and obviously um and and there are um kind of satellite breweries i know um catskill brewery does uh kind of like a satellite down at 
uh, Chelsea Market over the summer where they're they'll they'll do they have like a beer garden there and the when the weather's nice. But yeah, and to, I mean, you know, real estate in Manhattan is not cheap, obviously, and breweries are not small footprints. Um, and Torch and Crown is no exception exception. That's it's three floors and they have giant tanks and I can't imagine what the rent or the price of that building is, but there, there's a reason why you don't see too many of them there. You do a couple more New, New York City walks, obviously Brooklyn, um, because there's tons of breweries down in Brooklyn. And then you work your way upstate bit by bit. Uh, it seems to me that the intent of the book uh, is a little easier than the reality. And the intent would seem to be you do a hike and at the end of the hike, there's a brewery waiting for you. But given the size of New York State and the amount of rural land, it's not always the case, is it? No. Um, and that, yes, that is the intent. And we wanted to, you know, highlight as many different kind of regions or areas as we could, uh, as you know, time and space would allow. Um, so yes, we, we, you know, we could have done, honestly, we could have done half a book just about Brooklyn with the amount of breweries down there. Um, but yeah, we wanted to kind of spread things around and yeah, I mean, the, the idea is that ideally it's close enough that you could walk from the end of the hike or the beginning of the hike to the brewery. You know, again, as, as you get further and further upstate, that gets harder and harder, but we do have a couple of other hikes in different places. We have one that actually starts and finishes at a brewery and is still mm -hmm. all trail um, mm -hmm. up outside Saratoga. Um, but the, the, the main idea is uh, less than 10 miles from the, the trailhead to the brewery. Um, right. Which in Brooklyn, you know what, though? I used to live in Brooklyn very, very close to where that, that, that there's there's like three breweries pretty much on a block. And it was a beer desert, a bar desert. In fact, it was an urban sort of desert when I first moved there. And um, just watching that change and going back these days and knowing that there's breweries galore, it's it's always amazing just to watch an area change. And I'm, I, yeah. I know that's true in the wine world as well, where there's been great modernization. You know, Colin, you may or may not know, we have these really small boutique importers now who've moved beyond your regular kind of Appalachians and DOCs and they import Van der Paille and, you know, like really off the beaten path kind of, you know, sustainable, sustainable wines. Um, just before I, I I'm going to raise something and bring you in on it, Colin, but uh, as somebody who enjoys a glass of wine, I mean, you're also Scottish, British culture, you enjoy a pint as well. Oh, yes, I've been known to, to do so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a... Uh, um, you know, maybe maybe you've got a favorite pub because it has the beer you like. Is there a, is there a particular beer you look out for or want to give a shout out for just while we're on the subject of beer? Well, where I live in Edinburgh, we have several microbreweries here and as well, and it's a it's a kind of growth area. Um, there's one um, the Pilot Brewery is from Leith, which is a kind of dock area of Edinburgh. Um, and it supplies several of the, the bars and restaurants around about where I live. So you like that's pilot. probably that that would be my my choice. Yes, I think so. which beer yeah. of this? They, well, there's a, they have a, a pale ale. Um, they also have a peach beer, which mm -hmm. is uh, quite quite refreshing on a on a warm day. If we ever get any of those in Scotland, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, well, so probably one of those. One of the things you raise in your book is the unavoidable topic of global warming or global boiling, yeah. which means that warm days are more common in Edinburgh and we're growing wine now in Britain, which we have been doing for a long time, but we're starting to grow red wine 
in Britain. Mm. I should say yeah. growing red grapes to make red wine in Britain. So, um, yeah, hot days. Uh, as mm. an interesting thing, you mentioned the pale ale because a British pale ale traditionally is very, very different from an American pale yeah. ale. Uh, mm. The British one tends to be a very light beer um, that tastes almost like a bitter. Uh, I think, you, you know, and... and uh, the American ones do tend to be hoppy. And I'm going to throw out to you, Jay, I know you well enough, you and Phil, so I'm going to throw out the one challenge about this book. And, uh, uh, but, you know, I know you're going to have an answer for it, but, I, but and it, it's somewhat, it, yeah, I'm going to ask Colin to comment on it as well, because to me, it's somewhat amusing. But you say up front, right at the start of the book on page 12, about, um, I've got it right here. You know, as with many other East Coast brewing regions, New York yielded a profusion of hoppy American ales and IPAs in the early stage of the craft beer movement. Over the past several years, an emphasis on farm licensing and local ag agriculture, which you've already mentioned, uh, Jay, and I'm glad you did, has contributed to an explosion of farmhouse ales, saisons, and sours. We try to include a wide variety of styles among our featured beers. And you sort of have done... But when I started reading this book, taking the journey through the book, it starts in with you know, back in Manhattan with an almost famous IPA at six point six percent. The next one's a Green City IPA at seven percent. The next <laughs> one's the Orbital Tilt at five point nine percent. Marlow Artisanal, you recommend for their low ABV beers, uh, they're eager to share pale ale is five point four percent, and. And then it's industrial arts, who I love, but their wrench is, is I, which I call their industrial strength, is a 7.1% IPA. And then the next one, hike, these are all of the first like seven or eight hikes, is a hanging garden pale ale at 7%. And when with beer seven, you finally get off the pale ale and IPA habit, it's with a rushing duck beanhead porter. 9.6% beer. <laughs> so um, given you know, beer culture in the States and Britain, I want to ask Colin to just sort of comment on that based on what people would be used to drinking in the UK. Yeah, th <laughs> those would be deemed exceptionally strong, I think. Um, interestingly, when, when I was, uh, one of the runs I did was in Belgium, um, which... Uh, actually takes a couple of the boxes that you just mentioned. The first one was global warming. Belgium, being a cold country, is actually benefiting from global warming and they're now growing grapes there that would have been grown further south in the past. But secondly, the, the beer thing, um, when you go into a restaurant in Belgium, um, the choice of wine is often red or white. <laughs> that's, that's the wine <laughs> list. And the beer list is mu multiple beers. Um, and the strength is very much, very close to double digits in in many cases, and sometimes beyond. Um, it's 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 really a beer country rather than a wine country, um, but that seems to be closer to some of these uh, ABVs that you're you're talking about in in New York. Um, in in the UK, for example, a left Belgian beer would be considered to be probably one of the towards the stronger end. In Belgium, that was that was at the weaker end of uh, the beer lists that we that we saw when we were in in bars and restaurants. Yeah, when I'm when I'm in uh, the UK, and I, I'm going to obviously ask you, Jay, just to sort of elaborate on that. But when I'm in the UK, there's a couple of things I do think are worth mentioning as caveats. British pints are bigger; they're 20 ounces compared to 16 ounces in the, in in the states, <clears throat> and 
<coughs> excuse me, and uh, uh, habitually, typically, historically, British drink more. Um, yeah, going out for a night mm-hmm. with three or four pints is not at all unusual. So there might be a historical tendency for the beers to be a little bit lighter so that you can get through that evening. And I have noticed as I've gotten older and my friends in the UK have, uh, you know, I, I really enjoy a particular pub in Beverly that's hundreds of years old, but it has local beers, local craft beers and classic bitters. And my friends are always kind of anything above 5%. They're calling a big a big beer. So, so Jay, I just wanted to throw that out to you. I know a lot of it's geographic, but the initial thing was, oh my God, I'm hammered just reading, <laughs> just looking at, looking at pictures of the cans. I'm feeling hammered. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a great point. And um, I, it, I, I'll say that in the US uh, in general and in, and in New York, you know, I, I, is no exception, certainly. Uh, it's rare to find, you know, um, microbrews where you're seeing more than one or two beers below five percent five percent is kind of the baseline uh for most u.s microbrews at least in my experience um and certainly in new york that's that's not uh unusual and you know i mean most people would consider you know a budweiser or something like that a a, you know fairly standard or or in the u.s at least that's you know that sort of thing is a, a lower uh, not low alcohol, but, you know, certainly not considered an exceptionally strong beer. And that comes in at about 5% as well. So, you know, um, yeah, to see uh six, 7% is not unusual. Um, and once you're tipping the eight, 9%, I think most people even on, on this side would agree that that's, that's getting on the stronger end. Um, yeah, we, we, we certainly, again, just like I said, we could have done half a book of, of just, uh, just Brooklyn, we could have done an entire book of all IPAs. I mean, that's, and in, in Northeast beer culture, that's, that's hard to, uh, that's hard to, to avoid. Um, you know, we, and, and, and it did get a little bit frustrating at times to go into a brewery, especially one where we haven't been before and talk to the brewer or talk to the bartender and say, well, what do you recommend? And the answer almost always is invariably the IPA. Um, to the point where we just started saying, what do you recommend other than the IPA? Um, (laughs) Tony, some of the ones that you mentioned, like Industrial Arts, which is, you know, one of my favorite breweries in the book. And we, you know, knew that one pretty well going in. Um, You know, we're we're putting the idea of the book together. We knew we wanted to include Industrial Arts and you can't really include Industrial Arts. You know, if you're picking one beer, it kind of has to be wrench. Uh, It's just, it's, yeah, it's an IPA, but it, it's one of the best. And, you know, it's a similar thing if you're going to other half and you can't go to other half and not have a green city. You can't go to sloop and not have uh, juice, a juice bomb. Yeah, you can't sure. go to Ithaca beer and not have a, a flower power. So, you know, you're, you're kind of stuck a little bit just based on how good those beers are. I mean, just, just to use those two as an example, um, you know, Ithaca flower power is like the quintessential, um, north or east coast ipa it kind of invented the east coast ipa and the owner of industrial arts is the guy that invented flower power at ithaca um so you know obviously wrench and and something like that is going to be is going to be great and and, and it's funny you say wrench you, you think of as kind of a pretty heavy beer that's one of the lighter beers they have there um <laughs> we went through a couple of flights at at industrial arts and um you know they have double IPAs they had we had a barley wine ale there that was about 10 or 11% which was delicious but you know that that's that'll knock you right over um so yeah it's it's definitely there's a there's a, a funny perspective on it but the belgian the belgian beers and belgian beers are generally my favorite um 
Phil loves IPAs and I love IPAs too, but if if I had to pick a, a, a beer culture, it would be Belgium. And um they they yeah, they can range pretty widely. And we have a five percent grisette from uh Yard Owl Brewery, which is a, a Belgian style brewery here uh, outside New Paltz, uh up to I think we have a, a Belgian triple that comes in at about nine or nine and a half percent um yeah, from up you, in Saratoga. Yeah, and you give a big shout out to Brewery Oma Gang, which is um a, a dedicated Belgian brewery, actually majority owned by Duvel, who helped initially finance it. And Omegan right. was an early entry into the American craft beer stakes and their Hennepin, which you include, is a legendary beer. And I love that. I love that beer myself. But, you know, uh, the beer comes at the end of the hike. You do write in the book, don't hike <laughs> while intoxicated. Make sure you're not drinking and driving. Uh, so, you know, uh, typically I think you're recommending that somebody sits there and watches somebody else drink or some other people drink. <laughs> um, but let's talk about the outdoors aspect of it because we're all about positively engaging with the world out, out, out uh, outside our door. New York State is a great hiking place. I, I often, I can justify running a lot easier than I can justify hiking, which I love doing. Um, you know, hiking just, I just find, sometimes I find it hard to express what is beautiful about hiking. Do, do either of you want to give that a go? Particularly maybe once you get outside of Manhattan and Brooklyn and Poughkeepsie and a couple of the other cities. What, what you know, what, for somebody who says, well, isn't hiking just walking, but with nothing, I don't know, isn't it just walking? Why don't you just call it walking? What's what's our attraction for hiking? Why do some people decide to hike the whole Appalachian Trail or the Long Path or something in New York? Um, I mean, from that perspective, in terms of the through hiking, I think there are a lot of there there are a lot of motivations that people have, and uh, you know, I, I would compare it a lot to you know what you and I are familiar with in the trail and ultra running world, Tony, where. You know, people go into these sort of things seeking something, not uh, in some ways a connection with the outdoors and nature. And and in a lot of cases, I would say most cases uh, are seeking something internal or, you know, just just learning, trying to learn something about themselves and and find, um, you know, a limit, uh, you know, kind of challenge their their perceptions of, of what they can or can't do or change their lives or, or something like that. So, you know, the, the through hikes, that's the 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 long things like the the long path or the Appalachian Trail or something like that those are those are kind of their own their own beast. Uh, I mean the nice thing about hiking and I'm I'm kind of like you you know I come to to hiking from a trail running perspective mostly and and you know Phil and I both being trail runners did we we ran a lot of these hikes in the book it was pretty time efficient too but um uh yeah I mean I think um you know however however you're kind of interacting with the world around you and just unplugging a little bit and kind of noticing things that you wouldn't necessarily notice otherwise is, you know, however you want to enjoy it is, is more than reasonable. Um, sometimes, you know, I, I mean, sometimes slowing down and hiking it, actually, you notice a little bit more, you know, things that you might've run past or, or not noticed uh, if you were moving a little bit quicker. So there's, there's that aspect of it. And, you know, running's not for everybody, certainly. But um, no, I, 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 you know, I, I sympathize with what you're saying. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a runner at heart and I, I tend to favor the, the hikes and the trails that I can that I can run over to. 
Oh, I, I want to be clear. I love hiking. And uh, a year ago from this weekend, Jay, I did as a fundraiser, actually, for the Crystal Palace FC Foundation, they, their sort of um, community program. I hiked the Catstail Trail Marathon. I did not run a step. And my goal was to hike it within the running cutoff time. I had a great day out. And at the end of it, I felt great. And the next day, I didn't particularly feel like I'd done 26 miles. So, I mean, I, I, there's so much to recommend the hike. And I think also the peace and solitude, the beauty, the nature, all of that that you get. Um, for you, Colin, um, you're very modest about your running. You, you, you enter 12 races, and most of these races sound like somewhere between fell running, which we've done an episode on here, and, and trail running. They actually sound just kind of quite a most of them, you seem to be going up muddy hills and t- <laughs> taking sharp corners and running into vines. Um, That's kind of how it felt. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The, the runs, are, the runs are pretty challenging. How did, how did you feel each month gearing yourself up for another another sort of uh, trip across the uh, across the sea and another run? Yeah, I mean, it, it varied because the, the distances were everything from a couple a couple of. 5k runs up to a, a marathon um somewhere on roads um but um yeah you're you're right most of them were through muddy fields up hills um and um i think just uh, the, the month to month thing made it easier to go out training because i was i was obviously a lot of the training was was taking place during the winter when it was it was cold and wet um but that that incentive was always there. I, I just kind of knew that I had to go out and train, uh, or, or I wasn't going to be fit. And the thing is that although uh, I was doing one run per month, it wasn't necessarily four weeks apart. Um, so you know, if one was in the, the third week of September and then the next one was in the second week of October, there's only a three week gap. Um, and within that, I also had a couple of days. Um, researching one trip, uh, traveling, coming back, and then researching the one that I was, in, or finalizing my research on the one that I was going to go to. Um, I think that, um, I mean, I, I, the kind of hist- my own history is that I, I, I ran when I was a, a teenager, and then I kind of drifted out of athletics. And then I got back into it when I was in my early 20s and drifted out of it again. Um, and hiking was one of the things, or walking was one of the things that I did to keep fit. And I also went to a gym uh, fairly frequently. Um, but then during lockdown, gym closed down. And that was when I kind of started to run again. Uh, and at that point, I realized the, like, the different types of fitness you can have. So the, the fitness for running is completely different to hiking or, or some of these other things that you, you may choose to do. Um, but what struck me most about gradually building the distances that I could cover again um, was the obviously the physical aspect, the, the, the health aspect of it, but also the mental health aspect. Um, and it's kind of as Jay says, I think that once you're, if you're out there and you're just surrounded by nothingness, um, it's a really, it, you, you, can, you clear your mind, um, you're challenging yourself, um, and I just found all of that just beneficial in so many different ways. Yeah, it's beneficial to the body. It's beneficial to the mind. All of that is very, very true. Um, 
this seems like a good point for me to mention. You know, I was saying about like there was a period where I got the, you know, very into wine and, and maybe, you know, even too much so. And that there were, I got into wine more probably just ahead of becoming kind of serious about my running. And it was both to do with parenting. Um, we stopped going out for dinner when we became parents. And I said, let me spend that $20, a bottle that I was spending in Manhattan at the time, anywhere on anything and take it to the wine store and see what it will buy me. Of course, it bought me something three times as good. Mm. Um, but then I also started putting on the weight <laughs> as a result of that and figured that I had a little bit of running in me and I could probably do it better. And what I found, it took me a few years to really, really confront this and realize it, is that um, running and wine do not go together as well as, say, running and beer. There's something about, and I've got to be honest with you, Jay, the hops, the the IPA aspect. I'm already thinking about the beer I'm going to have on Saturday after the cat's tail. <laughs> but the couple of times I've gone for like a red wine after a, after a tough race, after a long run, I've come to regret it. It feels like that is not the thing to have. I wanted to ask you about that because in your book, you you seem to make it seem like a, a, a cakewalk. I'm not saying that you're drinking while doing the run, so... Though there are some, um, <laughs> because they because that's part of the run. Not that you're carrying like a hip flask. It's part of the run. There's a table. There's a table, and somebody saying, "No, you may not go further till you till you try." But how do you how do you respond to that? Is it just me? Is it my metabolism, or is that something that you think most of us would come up against? Uh, I don't know. Um, I mean, I if I'm just having a, a drink. In any on an evening or something, I would probably have a glass of wine rather than a beer anyway. So maybe it's just that I'm more accustomed to it. And the the countries I was in, you know, France, Italy, Spain, these places, I guess that's kind of what they do as well. You know, that they're they're more wine drinking countries than than beer drinking countries. Um, I mean, I, I also I can fully understand that when you get to the end of a run, you think oh, I need to drink something, even if it's a soft drink or if it's water or if it's not. It's going to be a beer, probably. Um, I, I I don't know. I mean, I think it's 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 an individual thing. There are some people who say, "Oh, I can't drink red wine because it gives me a headache." There are others who say, "I only drink red wine because it's got health benefits that apparently are scientifically proven." Um, so, I, yeah, I, I don't I don't think there is a rule to that as such. Uh, right. I think it's a, it's probably an individual thing. Okay. Um, you mentioned there about the health benefits. I think you said they haven't been proven. Is that what you were saying? Well, with they may or may not have, I think. Right. There's, <laughs> yeah, the pros, pros, the pros and cons. Right? There's, there's a lot I still want to get to. I want to mention the, the, the countries you got to that were not the obvious ones, uh, Colin, and I'd, I'd love yeah. to ask you about a couple of the breweries and your favorite hikes, Jay. But you've that, that's a good segue into something I do want to talk about because uh, only a couple of episodes back I had somebody who made a – has made a really cool documentary about he was uh, he got uh, became yeah he's got like an addictive personality and nearly died a couple of times from ODing in nightclubs took up rock climbing made this movie Rockaholic about himself and two other people who found you know switched their addiction to to rock climbing as a healthier thing and on my other podcast the Fanzine podcast maybe not surprisingly because it's comes from rock and roll backgrounds a couple of people that that had to go through their their big moments their rock bottoms and and sober out and as you get up in age and you know, i'm sure we're all on facebook and we've all got friends who are like hey man you know three years sober today uh everybody congratulate me and you're like yeah good you know it's great for you and you probably needed 
to stop. You know, you probably are one of those people I was always thinking, you know what, you probably need to stop. But I do fear at times that there's almost like a divide coming and the sort of sober curious thing is almost as hip now as wine was becoming in the 90s or, you know, or, or craft beer was started becoming a decade later and that there's almost this sort of new temperate movement that if you're a smart, sophisticated, happy adult, you know, you're going to be like, you don't need any of this. And um, I'm very aware of having spent my life around music. Uh, I'm, ve- you know, I'm, ve- I'm very, very aware of, of addiction issues and, and certainly the attraction of alcohol and the way it's marketed to us when other things are illegal. And yet for my own part, I'm also, I've done enough studying of humans to know that from the moment that we could, we fermented our fruits and we ate the magical plants and animals do a lot of the same stuff. Animals kind of really like getting drunk at times, you know. They're, they're, they're pretty known for it when they can. So I, I want to just have a brief discussion on that because I don't want us to seem like we're glorifying, you know, the idea of running with a glass of red wine in your hand or hi- only hiking a difficult mountain because, you know, there's a brewery at the, the bottom of the mountain. But I think it's important to have a fair, you know, uh, just, just have a little bit of back and forth. I'd like your opinions on that, I guess, in short. Okay, well, I mean, I... I think it's all about balance and um, you could just as easily be addicted to running. So there are some people who just become addicted to running. They need to run a long way every day, or they may be addicted to some food, um, you know, something that they eat. They maybe need to eat that all the time. And the drinking thing is the same. It may be that you, feel the need to drink or you're unable to control your consumption and I think that from my point of view the book was about striking the right balance and it was for me uh, the running probably came out on top it was a bit more important than the other bit it was where I was where I was doing the running was the the kind of wine related bit and because I, I actually chose that because I wanted to taste the wine in that area but I, I, for me, uh, my, my personal approach to it was striking a balance, and I, I think I achieved that. Now, someone else may, may have gone through, gone to these same countries and done the same things and got the balance slightly differently, chose to run and not drink during a run or after a run, or chose to walk and just drink <laughs> during the run. Um, but for, for me, I... Uh, I ended it. I ended the the, the project um, or the challenge, feeling that I'd, uh, I'd got the balance right. Yeah, it comes across in the book. You come across as a as, as a, a a pretty you know. I was almost going to say sober, but that's not quite right. But you come across <laughs> as a sort of very you know level headed, balanced person in 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 the book. Jay, you and I actually sort of knowing each other, and I have been a guest on your podcast before, the Pain Cave, which you open. Mm-hmm with a beer check. You and Phil are always open with a beer <laughs> check. Although I have noticed that more often than not these days, Phil has an athletic in hand uh, with yeah. an, an, an a beer. So what's your take on this? We, we both know a lot of people who probably qualify as being addicted to running and may actually be sober people that have swapped, you know, just like that rockaholic thing, have found something Absolutely. that they prefer to be addicted. They, they think is a healthier thing to be addicted to. What's your take on all of this? Yeah, there's there's uh, certainly a huge connection in the in the ultra running world um, between, you know, uh, as Colin was saying, kind of swapping one addiction for another. And there's no no shortage of stories of people who, um, 
you know, overcame, you know, drug or alcohol addiction, you know, and, and kind of just replaced it with, with this kind of long distance running thing. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I was, I, I, I think there is a, in some cases a kind of a glorification of, of alcohol, you know, use and maybe not responsible use um, in kind of, you know, from a trail running perspective in the, in that world, maybe not quite so in, in the hiking world, but um, I think it, it's, it's definitely a concern. Um, and I, I don't, I think when Phil and I were, were kind of approaching the book, we wanted it to be more of um, just kind of a, a celebration of kind of the beer as, you know, just the variety and the inventiveness of it. And not so much as like, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of a celebration of the act of drinking itself, uh, per se. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky in my, uh, relationship to alcohol in that I, I kind of have an addictive personality and I enjoy a beer or I enjoy the, the taste of beer and I enjoy the variety of beer, but I've never been somebody who enjoys drinking a lot. So, uh, I don't know why that's one, uh, kind of aspect of addiction that that's kind of, uh, avoided me, but, but I'm lucky, but you know, I, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely very cognizant of that, uh, perspective on it. Um, I think like Colin was saying, it does come down to balance. What's nice about, or, I, I mean, I guess part of the justification or the way that we thought of the book was, you know, we're, we're kind of encouraging people, uh, to check out places and areas of the state that they might not be familiar with, you know, maybe turning somebody who's, um, an experienced hiker or somebody who, you know, has done a lot of hikes in the Adirondacks into some of the stuff around the Hudson Valley or in the Finger Lakes. And similarly, you know, maybe if this book helps somebody who enjoys going out and having a beer or checking out a new brewery, you know, just look right around the corner is a way that you can actually appreciate this area in a different way. And, um, you know, without a value judgment of a better way or, or a worse way, but just you know, maybe a, a different way than they might otherwise have and, and, you know, kind of connect with, with nature and the outdoors that way. So, um, yeah, I don't want to minimize what, what you're saying about, um, you know, I, 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 I cringe sometimes at the, like I said, the kind of the glorification of, of drinking in that way, but, um, you know, I, but, I just, hopefully we framed it a little bit differently. Yeah. But, but having said that, I always, I, I have a sort of running gag, but I've, I, I think it can be almost scientifically proven. I mean, most people, particularly on, on ultras and big trail races are running for the finish line. If, because they're running for their beer, the cold beer that they've got <laughs> packed away. And if not, it's because they're, they're sober because they had too much of it in the past. I mean, <laughs> I know for a fact that by the time I finish on Saturday and this will be over and hopefully I'll finish. Um, but this will, you know, the, the, it'll be in the past by the time this episode comes out. Uh, there will be plenty of people still sitting outside the Phoenicia Parish Hall with, uh, you know, some six packs and just chewing the fat and, you know, having a lovely time, having had a lovely day out. And, you know, to that for, for me is actually part of the attraction of, of the day, that sort of, you know, gathering around at the end. Um, I'm always incredibly, incredibly careful because I'm all skin and bone. I've got to drive home. So I tend to save that for later for me. But, you know, it is part of the culture. Listen, we've got about 10 minutes left. Um, one other topic I wanted to raise, and then I want to ask maybe about your favorites. Uh, for, for you, Colin, particularly, I had, uh, do you, are you, you, you may or may not know of Damien Hall. He's a uh, top 
top British runner, he set the record for the Pennine Way, and then an American took it back, and then he took it back, and then the American took it back. And Damien is a powerhouse middle-aged runner who can run all day and all night for four or five days. Um, he's become an eco-warrior as well, and he wrote a book about, mm. uh, I talked to him about, called We Can't Run Away From This. And it's effectively about how runners are not the wonderful stewards of the environment that we think we are, and we cause as much damage as almost any other culture. Um, and it's everything from our ridiculously over-the-top shoes that we don't need, all the swag. Um, and it's not just driving to races, which I'm guilty of, but flying to races. Mm. And he stopped flying for three years. Um, yeah, because of that, he did just go out and do the Barclays, the Barclay Marathons, or the Barclays Marathon, whichever way around you'd say it, Barclay Marathons, I think. Um, so he's, you know, he's gotten off that a little bit. He's trying to limit it. Uh, you, uh, of necessity, flew to a bunch of places. I did notice that you took public transport when there. Um, mm. That was, you know, you often ride about the bus. You said something in your introduction about being very cognizant of all of this. So I wanted to just give you a chance to talk about how you approach that because it wasn't like you were blind to the issue of, um, you know, the climate crisis. Yeah. I mean, that was the, my, my contribution to that, I suppose, was to try and avoid taking two flights to some of these places. By the very nature of the locations, they were, they were slightly out on a limb. So it wasn't a case of flying to Berlin or Paris or a capital city um, and then, you know, catching a local bus to the to the venue. Then they were, in some cases, several hours from the airport. Um, and I could, in some cases, have flown again. Uh, I decided against that. And where, wherever possible, as you say, um, I opted to use... Um, local transport and that was a bit of um it was a bit of an eye-opener in 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 several respects uh, in that you realize how some countries are are, are taking this a bit more seriously than others in terms of the the provision of public transport and the encouragement to to use that public transport um and it was also um away from my point of view to see parts of a country that I wouldn't otherwise have seen. Um, so the, I had a few interesting, interesting experiences on, on public transport. Um, one in particular being in Slovenia, where um, I, I spent a whole day waiting, or almost a whole day. I had to catch a bus from the, the place that the, I was running in the race as a, at about 40 minutes to a kind of hub and then I spent about six hours waiting for another bus uh, to Ljubljana um, which was the is, is the capital of, of uh, Slovenia and then the next day I had to get another bus to the uh, to the airport to, to fly back um, so I went through some um, interesting places some colorful landscape and saw some colorful characters as well along the way um i do find i do find with travel that the most interesting aspects of travel are those bus journeys it's it's yeah. the travel it's not necessarily the destination it is being with the locals getting from a to b i think you get as much out of travel from being at a bus station yeah. Or from being on that local bus, as you sort of do by, you know, getting a taxi from A to B and being at your hotel three hours earlier. And I, yeah. I, I will, I will stick to that. But you mentioned, um, you mentioned Savlakia, and I think in your intro you do say about doing some carbon offsetting. Um, 
So yeah. I know that you're aware of that. And I'll also say Damien is, is big on, you know, attach a run to a holiday. You know, just he points out the French actually did a study and the average French person, you know, their carbon footprint, their, their tons of emissions per year get doubled if, if that person flies to New York for the marathon. And thousands right. of them do. So yeah. that's, that's the footprint of, of flying. It is enormous. But, you know, if you attach it to a trip and you're learning about wine and you're writing about culture and you're writing about history and it's a travel book. So I, I'm pretty sure. Also, Damien, so, he's so British apologetic. He's like, I'm so sorry for upsetting everybody, but this is the <laughs> god-awful truth. Please forgive me. I know, I know. I whine on. Um, but you mentioned Slovakia. We, we, we're going to run out of time. So I'm going to run off the countries that you visit. So you did the big powerhouses, you know, France, Germany, Spain, Italy, Portugal. I do like that in Italy you went to Prosecco, which has a, a reputation for cheap kind of swill, and you disproved that. You went to the Sherry Head, you know, chief area in Andalusia in Spain and did the same thing. And you, you rightly included England. And your other countries are just very interesting. You did mention Belgium. You did Switzerland. You did Austria, which I guess, you know, they fit, but you also did Hungary and you mentioned Slovakia and you did Slovenia. Um, out of those, oh, and Belgium, which you did mention, out of those that we, do, I think those four are ones that we don't really think of with wine. Which would yeah. you say is the most up and coming? Actually, you can include England as well. Which one would you say is the most up and coming of those five? I suspect it's between Belgium and Hungary, probably Hungary, actually, because Hungary is still trying to shake off the legacy of communism. Um, Hungary has, a, has historically had a very strong wine-producing culture. Um, and then during under communism, um, the wine producers were encouraged to make more. So it was volume rather than quality. Mm -hmm. And they're now trying to undo that. Um, and they're, they're going, there's a, a guy, the, so the wine that I brought back from there was made by a guy who has... Um, He's gone to a, a, a plant museum and found some of the, the historic uh, Hungarian plants, so the, the vines that, that were used pre-communism, and started to replant them. So it, the, 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 wine, the, the wine is going back to where it was pre-communism, and the quality of that is very good. So I suspect that if that trend continues, we can expect to... to um, um, the they're also able to draw on some of the other um, the, the cultures of countries round about. Um, so if, if that continues and the quality of the, the, the vines that they're planting continues to grow, and I suspect that that will become um, a, a wine powerhouse, I suppose, in Europe. Um, Belgium is just a, oh, it's a complete outlier, but Belgium, what they're doing there is because of global global warming, they are now planting vines that until now have been the key products uh, of Germany. So it's actually Belgium being a slightly cooler country is now where Germany was a few years ago. So, Very interesting. Um, yeah. So I suspect that the Belgian wine in five years' time will be where Germany was maybe 15, 20 years yeah, ago. Yeah, I think Belgium's probably the country that stood out most on your list. Uh, on the English front, I just want to say quickly, again, uh, somewhat related to the global warming, I had a, uh, a lovely white wine from Yorkshire when I was in Yorkshire just <laughs> yeah. earlier this year. It's a hybrid, which means it's not vinifera. It's, it's you know, a plant that can resist colder temperatures. But uh, as red wine gets planted, 
planted more and more, or the grapes, I should say, again, in the south of England, more and more good white wine coming out from the north of England. Mm. Um, so just to observe that, Jay, maybe it's um, going to put you in a tough spot if I ask you to choose a favorite beer. But if it is, if it isn't, do you have one from the 33? And if not, a hike trail won't answer back. So you can choose a favorite hike or a favorite combo. Um, so uh, one thing I'll say is that, um, you know, while, while it's not a work of beer criticism or anything like that, you know, we try and be, it's, it's a celebration, but we didn't, there, there's no beers in there that I, you know, propped up falsely. There, the, every, everything we, we visited or everything that made it into the book really is, is very good. Um, and yeah, there were a few places that we visited that didn't make the book cause they just weren't that good. And we just, you know, didn't want, didn't want to lie or anything. Um, I, there's so many good beers. Uh, I mean, Hennepin, like you said, I, as somebody who, who like loves Belgian beers and loves Saison's, um, you know, I, I don't know that you're finding a better Saison in the U S uh, than, than Hennepin. So if I had to pick one, I guess that would be it, but um it, it's too hard uh it is to, a great really it, is, it is a great beer and it's not an ipa so at the end of the day it's unique <laughs> it's unique i listen man i love my ipas but it, but the, the hennepin is unique and i'll give you that um you have a favorite hike in the state from the ones i've got to say like i've only actually done about it's amazing i'm i'm experienced i've done about three of these hikes four yeah i've got a whole world to discover in new york yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, it's 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 very cool, and and it was it was fun to you know try to include some of the really well known ones. Uh, you know, in, in like the Finger Lakes, we we you know Watkins Glen and and Tagantic Falls and stuff like that, and then to to hit some different places. Um, I mean, I'll shout out one that that um, I, I had not done before. Uh, we did the book, uh, Phil and I. Neither of us had, and we did it together. Um, not too far from here, uh, in in Orange County, called. Um, Shunamunk Mountain. Mm -hmm. um, it's not an orange. It's in Putnam County. Sorry. Um, it's it's pretty close. It's it's uh, only probably about 30, 40 minutes from from here. Um, but just a really cool mix of terrain, um, some exposed rock uh, and just some really cool rock formations, some very nice views. Um, it was just, you know, a, a, a good hike up and then um, kind of along a ridgeline through some some scrub pine forests and seeing some very cool old glacial rock formations and a, and a particular um, uh, kind of glacial rock that's, that's pretty unique to that area. Um, so that, that was a, that was a fun one. That was a good mix of difficulty length and just um, uh, just some unique features that we, that, that was uh, also really fun because neither of us had ever seen it before and, and uh, we didn't really know it going in. So that was, that, that was one. Which is just further proof. There's always so much on our doorstep, and I'm I'm an ardent believer that that for all the negatives about the footprint, yeah, I, I'm with Mark Twain on the benefits of travel. About sometimes there is just a world to discover outside your door. I didn't know about Shunam. Is Shunamunk you're talking about, right? Yep. Yeah, yep. and just so people have a sense of your book, you know, it's like listed very clearly. Strenuous. It's year round. It's dog friendly, but leash required. You reckon most people four and a quarter hours. It's seven point four miles. It's a loop. So you come back where you started, you know, you gain 1,541 feet. And if uh, you're still standing after that, you probably won't <laughs> be after the 9.6% Imperial <laughs> Bean Ed Porter. Um, listen, the two books, 
Beer Hiking, New York State, The Tastiest Way to Discover the Empire State by Jason Friedman and Philip Vondra, The Wine Runner, My Year of Hard Yards and Vineyards. That's Colin Renton. Colin and and Jay, thanks for the great books. Thanks for coming on together. And uh, I hope the books both do fantastic. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Tony. Thank you again to Colin and to Jay for joining me for what I thought was a great chat. Colin's book is published by PolarisPublishing.com. Always try and start from the publisher's website if you can. Jay and Philip's book is published by Helvetique.com. That's with a Q at the end, Helvetique.com. It's one in four beer hiking books that have been published now and they've also got one wine hiking which is set in Oregon in the USA despite being a Swiss publisher and uh, Phil uh, Phil Vondra who couldn't join us for this um, particular interview Phil and Jason also have a podcast called The Pain Cave and very good it is too it's a bit more engaged with the uh, the ultra running community than anything else um than hiking for example and it does start with a beer check each week which I've always found quite enjoyable and I think it's a point to actually make that the ultra community it might be that people sort of run hard and you know like like some of them drink hard as well at the end of it because I noticed uh, at the end of the race on uh, which took place over the weekend in between recording the interview and me recording this um, this little monologue now it's the Cat's Tail Trail Marathon and I've done it several times it is 26 I think 0.2 miles almost all of it on the Catskills Mountains with 6,000 feet of very difficult technical uh, elevation in the in the thick of it and it ends with a mile on the road back to the village of Phoenicia, which used to be my local village. I love this race. It was really, really tough last weekend because of the rains that uh, had hit New York City in particular on Friday. They hit here as well. It was uh, very, very, very slippery. Everybody was going slow to be careful. And it was uh, where it wasn't slippery and it was flat. It was muddy. So it wasn't an easy race. But that is all by the by. I'm glad I did it. The point that I actually wanted to make was at the end, um, yeah, I was pretty much at the back of the pack uh, coming off this fractured knee, don't have my speed back. And uh, a couple of people were still hanging out, a couple of younger runners, and they offered me a beer. And I noticed one of them was drinking an Industrial Arts, which, of course, is the beer that uh, the brewery that uh, Jason said is, you know, like a benchmark for New York State. And I noticed it was called Torque Wrench, not just Wrench, but Torque Wrench. And I found out that's the double IPA, and that comes in at a massive 8.1%. Uh, the other guy was drinking Fiddlehead from Vermont, which I would say is the best, certainly per capita, beer state in the USA, really, for breweries. Magnificent beers come from there. Fiddlehead is wonderful. Uh, if you had hoped that a beer called Second Fiddle would be like the Session beer, it wasn't. It was their double IPA 7.1%. I declined both. I may do with a dogfish head. Um, what is it called? Like session sea salt or something, session sour ale. Um, just a 12 ounce can at 4.2 and had some food because, as I say, I had to drive back home. That went down like lemonade, though. It was lovely. The reason for mentioning all of that is not to get too deep into the woods, is to say that uh, I looked at Industrial Arts website and they make, um, as well as a couple of really good non alcoholic beers, I've had them. Uh, they also um, have a bunch of sort of lagers and pilsners 
and the like, and Kolsch maybe, right in between 45 and 5.5%. My experience at the couple of breweries we've got here in Kingston is, you know, Keegan's has lagers hanging out at 4%, um, often a session, uh, I think their session IPA is 45 And uh, I would say that you can get the lighter beers here, and... Uh, I think that's an important point to make, as well as noting that those British pints being bigger does make a difference. If you add up the alcohol content in a 20-ounce pint of uh, 4-ounce beer, you'll find it's the same as a 16-ounce American pint of 5-ounce beer. And the British do tend to hang out and have like three, four pints maybe, where the Americans would settle for one or two, Very typically. Typically, um, I want to give a shout out to Colin for uh, heading off the beaten path himself so much uh, in France. He went to Alsace, very interesting region because it's changed hands frequently between Germany and France over the years. Uh, there is an excellent book called Wine and War that deals very much in the, the Second World War history of um, uh, of Alsace. And I did notice with him going to Slovakia and Hungary that Slovakia has just uh, elected a very right wing leader, probably the only uh, ally of um, Hungary's leader, you know, that they're, they're both sort of Putin. Um, I don't know if they're puppets or just supporters, but I also do know from everywhere I visited in the world that people are people and uh that you should never judge a country just by its leader. And so it's great that he went to places like Slovakia and Hungary. Um, during that race last Saturday, you know, it's very easy for us to say, like, hike all these difficult trails and, and go run a marathon in Alsace or, you know, some crazy nighttime run through vineyards. Um, even, you know, anybody can do this. Anybody can hike. Anybody can run. The important thing is to put one foot in front of the other and do it and get your exercise, whether the weather's good or not. Get out there, keep your body moving. It will add not just years to your life, but quality to those years to your life. And in the sense that actually the things that some of us do really aren't impossible. Um, I'm pushing 60. I'll be turning 60 next year. Uh, on the race last Saturday, coming in just behind me, it was a guy called Andy Garrison. It was his 60th birthday. He celebrated by running the Cat's Tail, his first race ever, and he only finished a few minutes behind me. Uh, he does know the course because he volunteers on it, but I didn't know him as a runner. He was delighted. Why wouldn't you be? So you're never, 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 never too old to do this. And on that note, I'm going to do my week's, uh, my Friday Substack long-form article this weekend. Actually, it's usually on Saturdays. I send out a long-form article. Sometimes it is for subscribers only, like paid subscribers only. And I'm going to write about... Um, how I was so not a runner when I was a kid, like so unhealthy. Uh, maybe the running was lurking in me and I just didn't know. And I thought that might be an interesting point for people that are listening to something like this and might think we're all kind of either born fit or born unfit. I don't believe it works that way. All right. Thank you so much for listening to me prattle on here. The music that uh, should be fading in right around now is A Word That Doesn't Rhyme by The Dear Boys. That's my transatlantic project with my best mate, Tony Page. This is a song with vocals that comes out October 26, 2023, in case you're hearing this in the future. And this show drops at the start of every month, pretty much in the middle of the week. And I will look forward to seeing you next time around. Do sign up if you would, tonyfletcher.substack.com for all the latest news, reviews, podcast stuff. And um, have yourself a great time out there. 
happy trails, happy hiking, happy whatever, happy being. You can't say there's no other way when you're the only one.